The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. So I'll start off by asking your full name. Jack Marshall. And your uh, rank that you got to? Rank, oh, a flying officer. And um, your service number? 391865. Right, and your date of birth and place of birth? 1820. Okay, and where were you born? London. What part of London? A uh, place called uh, Ballam. Oh yeah, yep, mm. right. And uh, so did you grow up in London or were you there? I had my first 17 years in London. 17? Oh, and then right. my father... Uh, retired from the Central Telegraph office in London and decided to join my two brothers who were farming out here. And uh, that's how I came out in 1937. Right. That would have been a big move. It was a big move. Uh, Dad retiring and moving out here, selling up. Yep. Wow. It was indeed. So had you been working before then or were you just at school? Uh, no, I'd been working, but it was a temporary because I knew we were going to, coming out to New Zealand. So. Okay. So where did you go to school? In London, in yeah. a place called Stratham, actually. Okay. Mm. And did you have much interest in aviation when you were in Britain? Uh, no, not really. No. <laughs> I was one of those who always wanted to be a pilot, you know, nothing like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so when you got to New Zealand, where did you end up? Uh, Napier. Napier? Oh, mm. right. So 37, so the quake had been by then. So, so Napier must have been still rebuilding, I guess. Uh, you wouldn't know they'd had an earthquake, 1937. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Amazing, yeah. They work faster than we do. Yeah. <laughs> we did do. Yeah. Oh, right. Um, so you, you said you, your brothers were farming. Uh, no, they weren't actually. When the time I got here, they'd they'd given it away. It was too hard to work, much too hard for them. Okay. okay. And so, did you pick up work in Napier? Uh, yeah, um, yes, I actually I I was a steward at a, a gentleman's club, oh, right. uh, only for a um, couple of years, and then joined the air force. Right when the war came along. Yeah. So what what do you what can you remember about that period when the war started? Because you joined up very early. Uh, yeah, we actually were in, in camp just before Christmas, 39. 
and they sent us on Christmas leave and then we reported back sometime in January and started our basic training which of course is our marching up and down and all the rest of it. But where was and this at? Where, where did you this was in, um, just out of Palmerston North. Uh, Ohio? Yeah, a camp, camp uh, just out of Palmerston North. Uh, was, it? was it Ohio? Or I've, I've forgotten the name of it. <laughs> so, was it not an not an air force base or? Yes, it was an air force base. It must be a yeah, yeah, a training training yeah, it must station. Be, must have been a yeah. yeah, basic training station. So yeah, they they let you go home for Christmas and then you came back. Yeah. Finished yeah. the course. Then we went. Um, we were shipped to La to England on the um, Akaroa. Uh, RMS Akaroa, Royal Mail Steamship Akaroa. Okay. Went to a place called Axbridge and we did some more more uh, marching up and down, <laughs> square bashing as they call it. Um, and then we were, we were then posted to our various squadrons or OTUs actually, operational training units. So had you done any gunnery in New Zealand though before you went to England? Not before, no. Not before. I've never, I've never touched a gun before that. Wow. You, you knew that you were going to be an air gunner. Uh, no, actually, I. Um, what happened was um, they called for volunteers. They they needed three three gunners for each aircraft. Only one pilot and only one navigator saw. And uh, so I volunteered. <laughs> right. But you never got to do any firing of guns. In not pr not prior to the war, no. Not uh, prior to re not prior to joining a squadron, no. Wow, that's, so you, you basically were all you were was a raw recruit when you got to England. Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. Because we no. had a gunnery school there in Ahakia, and I thought, oh yes, I no, thought you must have gone through that. But. Didn't in those days. Wow. <laughs> so you were even before. Not the that I can school. remember. Anyway. We may have done a little. I don't don't remember. So you turn up there, and that's when you get to first fire a gun, yep. or, or get him to handle a gun. Yep. And, and where was that at? That was at uh, started off at um, a place called Bassingbourne. Oh yeah. Mm. That was o OTU. Right. Um, did, did you enjoy that? Were, were you having fun? Oh, I enjoyed all of it. Uh, in actual fact, I enjoyed the I enjoyed the the trips too, but uh, I didn't know that my survival rate was one in three at that stage. Nobody told us. <laughs> And you can see why. Huh? <laughs> and you can see why nobody yeah. told you. That's right. You can see why. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I got away with forty-six of them. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing for early war. Very, very lucky. Incredible. Yeah. So. So when you're at the OTU. Yeah. Um, what did you get onto? What sort of aircraft? Um. Wellingtons. Yeah. Well, wimpies we call them. Yeah. Yeah. And did you specialise from that point as a like a rear gunner or a front gunner or, or anything? Uh, rear gunner, yeah. You did specialise as a rear yeah. gunner, yeah. Yep. Okay, and I guess it was probably a matter of, is it weeks or months that you were at the OTU? I have no idea. And then, All and then on to Those sort of figures, are yeah. they're gone. <laughs> and then it was at that point that you got posted to a squadron? Uh, yes, I went up to um, Marham in Norfolk. Uh, that was um, 115 Squadron. Okay. Mm. So once you got onto a squadron, what, at the OTU you would have formed a crew, I guess. 
Uh, no, we didn't. No, no, we only training pur for training purposes. Right. Now, once we'd finished our training, we were all scattered to all over the country. Yeah. Um, the two, the two boys that I w shared a cabin with, neither of they, they came back. Neither of them. So that's the one in three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And. Um so once you got onto your, and you were on, was it 115 uh, one, one squadron, was it? Yep. Once you got on there, you formed up a crew? Uh, uh, yes, we did. Yep. And right. who was your crew? Pardon? Who were in your crew? Who were they? Oh, I'm not right now. Yep, that's, that's way back in the early days. Uh, I've got their photographs, of course. Right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Were I they all English or? Uh, yes, they were. Yeah. Yep. And did you still feel English at that stage? I mean, you know, you're not long... Did I what? ...still feel English rather than being a Kiwi? Uh, I suppose... No, I didn't, I didn't really think about it. I, I was in the Royal New Zealand Air Force, and yeah. that's what really mattered. Yeah. yeah, yeah. OK. So tell me about your first operation. Do you remember oh, that? No, I don't. I don't remember any of them clearly, yeah. except two. OK. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me about those two? That was two. Okay, this was um, this was in 1940, mm -hmm. November the 14th, 1940, and we'd been to Berlin, and we're on our way back, and we had an engine shot out by ACAT, and the skipper realised that we weren't going to get home, so we followed the Dutch coast down for a while with the idea of landing on the on the Dutch beach. And we thought that wasn't a very good idea because we thought realised there'd be concrete abutments and barbed wire and you name it and landmines and goodness knows what. So we turned the nose for home. We got 40 miles off Great Yarmouth and we had a ditcher. And ditching was quite something, I tell you, because I often say to young people, if you were going to crash an aircraft, would you rather crash it on the, gra on the ground or in the sea? And I would say 99 times out of 100, they'll say the sea. But in actual fact, the, if you land on the hard ground, you slide along. Your main danger, of course, is fire. If you hit the sea, it's like a solid wall. Boom! <laughs> That's what happened to us. But I was lying down prone, holding on to something, and I was okay. Uh, we we lost our we had two pilots in those days, which they later cut the second pilot out to conserve pilots, and um, the second pilot drowned. We, last we saw of him was hanging hanging on to where the front guns would have been, and he was hanging on there. And next minute he disappeared under. He probably passed out or something, so we never saw him again. So, and, and then what? I mean, you had to get a, a life raft. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, we had an old life raft. Um, in the early days, they used to make them with double skin. Then later on, to, in order to conserve rubber, they cut the double skins out and made single skin dinghies. We were lucky we had an old one, because what happened was, during the bouncing up and down on the dinghies, she cupped, came into contact with a, an, um, an aero anchorage and it split the outer skin open. Wow. I've, I've got a piece of it. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we were very lucky. If we'd had a, a brand new dinghy, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be here. 
that makes you actually wonder how many people had that problem later with the single skins where they got out in the dinghy, they're fine, and then it gets well, a hole in the, the old drum. Well, it was just unlucky that this uh, anchorage for the aerial stuck out and we sort of came in and, and, and it split us. But oh. uh, may, maybe it didn't happen to anybody else. True. How long were you, were you in the raft for? Uh, 16 hours. Wow. Mm. That must seem like an, an yeah. eternity. We, um, we finally got picked up by uh, His Majesty's trawler Pelton. And um, they were wonderful. They, uh, they had to haul us over the side of the ship because uh, we'd lost all the feeling in their legs because we were 16 hours of sitting in, in water. And um, they stripped us off, put us down into the engine room first. Then they stripped us off, took all their clothing away. And then they bring these big buckets of steam heated water. We had one each and we freshed ourselves and got all rid of the you know, the urine and everything else off our bodies. And uh, then they tucked us up into, into bunks, although they offered us some uh, baked beans, which I just couldn't look at. Yeah. <laughs> and then we were very, very tired, of course. Um, and they all tucked us up into, the, into their bunks and I went off like a, like a shot. I don't remember anymore. And um, anyway, the, the next thing we heard was this noise on the, on the docks. That woke us up. And they came in and they had all our clothes, uh, underclothes and a uniform, beautifully done. I think these big trawlers must have a, a proper laundry on, on them because they're, they're away several days at a time. Right. So I think they would have had laundry. Anyway, the, our clothes, and how they knew my, my trousers were mine and jacket was mine, I don't know. But we all got our proper clothes back. <laughs> But just take you back a little bit, when you were about to ditch, had, had you guys, had the wireless operator got a message out to say... Uh, yes, uh, and they vectored us from two, two stations on England, so they knew exactly where we were. Right. How they could contact HMT Pelton and, get, and tell them exactly where we were right, and pick right. us up. And, and they had uh, been specifically yeah. looking for you. Before well. that though, uh, we had to lighten the aircraft. We knew when we ditched her, if she had all the weight on board, it wouldn't go so well. So we, everything had to go, even the bunk. We undid the bolts on the bunk. And uh, the reason we could dump all this out was, uh, in the early days, they, they had what they called a dustbin turret. It was a round thing. And they had this big, big opening in the bottom of the Wellington aircraft. And it was hydraulic. And, to leave and the dustman used to go down with a gunner in it of course right. and he had a couple of guns I think he had two and so we had this big hole and it was on a catch and we was able to open it up and the bunk went down the guns the ammunition everything went out through that hole so we we lightened the aircraft considerably wow so at that point where you're you're pulling the aircraft apart to lighten it what's going through your head is it just Get it done, or are you still just too busy? Yeah, you don't have time to think about what's coming up. You, you. I must say this though: the the pilot, just a young chap, he made an absolute perfect sea landing, which is slightly nose up. You know, if you nose in too, you know you're in trouble. Yeah. But he had a perfect landing with nose up. Yeah. And it's not something you can practice for, really, is it? No, it is not. <laughs> <laughs>
then uh, when you were actually in the raft before you got picked up for those 16 hours, uh, what was the conversation? Was there any conversation? Very little. Yeah. Very, very little. Yeah. I think we were exhausted from the efforts on the aircraft and, and then the shock, you know, you're in shock really. And of course, you've lost one of your crew as well. Which sorry, you've lost one of your crew as yes, well. Yes, like that was, well, was a bit of a shock to yeah. us too. Yeah. We, uh, we probably discussed that, of course, for for, for a while. Yeah. But um, there's nothing much to, to talk about, really. It's all it's all over. Yeah. <laughs> Were you confident that you'd be picked up by the British? I felt so. I always was a an optimist. I never it never went through my mind really that we weren't going to make it. I don't know about the others, I have no idea what they were thinking. Or, but <laughs> so what happened after that, when you got back to Britain, uh, you, you get back to the dock? Great Yarmouth, yeah. Are you then, are you given survivor's leave? Are you, are you no, we had a, <coughs> we'd been into the naval sick quarters for the night actually. Um, and no, sorry, we've been to Naval Sick Quarter for a few hours and they checked us over, made sure we were okay and so on. And um, or they gave us something to eat. And while we were having this meal, uh, Ginger Isles, his name was, I remember him, he was sitting on the end of the table and all of a sudden he went bang and just collapsed straight down onto the top of the table, out like a light. <laughs> That's how the reaction didn't affect me like that. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Anyway, there was, um, when we came out from the naval sick quarters, the, that's when I cut a piece out of the dinghy, by the way, and um, there was a small small bus waiting for us to take us back to back to our station. Then they gave us sleeve, of course. Oh, of course. Okay. I think they gave us about 10 days, if I remember rightly. Okay. Was there any sort of particular special briefing that the medical uh, officer talked to you about? Anything to, just to see how you were going mentally yeah, after that? Or? Uh, I don't remember any briefing. Maybe, maybe the scaffold had a briefing, but the rest of the crew I don't think we did. Okay. I have no recollection of anything like that. Yeah. And then did you go back on to ops after that? Uh, after the leave, after yeah. The leave, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, where did I go? Uh, it went back to Marham, that's right, and right. did a few more trips from there. And then I had what they call um, uh, instructing for, I don't know, something like about eight, six or eight months, something like that. And then I went back on to 7th Squadron, which was Oakington out of Cambridge. That was a Pathfinder Squadron. That, I volunteered for that too. Right. So I volunteered twice. Wow. <laughs> that must have been... Right at the fairly big, right near the beginning of Pathfinders. I yeah, guess. it was because um, the Pathfinders' job was to go in. Of course, we are much smaller formation than the, the main force. I mean, the main force you're talking about hundreds of aircraft in the latter days, anyway. Um, the, the Pathfinders, they were a small force, but we were had the the gear that we needed on board, and our job was to locate and mark the target, but we had to be absolutely sure that we had the right target, like for instance Krupp's uh, armament works. We had to be sure that we had Krupp's in our radar, and we made sure that our what we call TIs or target indicators 
dropped right on the top of crops and that was very important it was a and we to do that we had to go in ahead of the main force so that uh, it was a bit bit of extra risk all right <laughs> we had the undivided attention of the of the defenses there <laughs> Yeah, well, you got away with it, that's the main thing. Actually, just to take you back again, when you were still on the Wellingtons, uh, you mentioned that trip where you ditched, mm -hmm. you had been to Berlin mm -hmm. in 1940, November 1940. Um, what was a trip over Berlin like then? Because that would have been it. Over to Target? Uh, it's very hard to explain, really. It's just a series of... Uh, like looking down on a firework display, really. I mean, it's just you can see the splashes going going off as the bombs go off, but they're they're minute, and we were up about sixteen thousand, fourteen to sixteen thousand. So you can imagine it's uh, <laughs> you're well above it. And as you're looking down and seeing explosions like mm. that everywhere, you must have realised that some of them weren't hitting the target. Well, you don't you. The bomb aimer, of course, is he's blind prone. He does the bombing, but as a gunner, it's my job to watch out for night fighters and not not watch the scenery or yeah. watch what's going on down the ground. So sure. my my looks were pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did you actually in those early days? Did you come up against many fighters? Did they have much of a fighter defence? Uh, no, we were dead lucky. We were very very lucky. We had two incidents of night fighters. Um, <clears throat> um, one, one was a, I think a Junkers 88, I think I remember rightly, and a, and a 109. There were two of them came in at different times. But you, you have to realise that it's pitch black dark. There's no moonlit, moonless night. They're painted black. They're a quarter of the size that you are. And they're very, very hard to pick up. And not only that, but they come up from out underneath you, which is your blind spot. There's nothing that we can see. And they give you a long burst underneath, right across. Then you know they're there. Yeah. Yeah. But by that time, of course, we've got the aircraft going into a turning dive and there's corkscrewing or whatever. And often we, we all lose them. In fact, I don't ever remember them ever having a second attack by the same aircraft. But, um, then on a, an, another occasion, uh, this fighter came in, he gave us a tremendous long burst as he went underneath us and right through. We knew he was there. And next minute, oh, next minute I find that my gun, my turret won't operate, my guns won't operate, it severed, severed all the hydraulics. And I had no power. To, in what we have to do then, we have to take a pin out of one of the guns, just one, take a pin out, and we use it as a free gun and pull a trigger on the side of the gun and use it as like a, like a free gun, just one. This takes time, you know, get, I couldn't get that damn pin out straight away. It was quite a hard job getting it out for some reason. Next minute, he's dead astern of me, and I thought, hello, Jack. This is it, boy, you've had it this time. And he hovered there for a minute, and all of a sudden, he swept away. He just just swept away, just disappeared. 
out of ammo. Wow. So <laughs> we think that he'd been in combat before us, and he'd used a lot of ammunition on the first combat. Then he spotted us, or was vectored onto us, and he came up underneath us, gave a very long burst right the way through, which did all the damage to my turret. The next minute he was dead astern of us. And, I mean, we're talking about seconds, we're not talking about minutes. We're talking about probably 20 seconds, maybe 30 at the very most. Wow. Uh, so, uh, how lucky can you be? <laughs> and there's moments like that that you'll never forget. Never forget it. Mm. <laughs> I see that, that fighter quite often. <laughs> what, what, was, um, what was life like on the squadron? At, at Very good, really. There, we, we were well looked after. We had things like eggs, which the average civilian didn't get. We may have got one a week or something like that. But we were well looked, well fed. And uh, as we went into the mess, we had two plates of, uh, of vitamins. I don't know what they were to this day, but there were two plates. We had to take one of each as we, as we walked into the breakfast table. But um, I was in the sergeant's mess to start with, and of course I got a commission, and then I spent the rest of it in the officer's mess. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was there much of the... I know a lot of the bomber guys that I've talked to, they, they talk about the mess games and uh, lots of... Um, that sort of, uh, there was one occasion when one of the officers walked in with a gun on each hip and he, he took he took a mountain fire up on the far wall and I, I don't know what happened to him, he would have, he would have been, uh, <laughs> uh, I'd have had a go at him all right. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I never got drunk or anything like that, I, uh, one beer was enough for me. Yeah. Did, did, did the squadron have a local pub next door to Moe? No, we didn't. It had to go into Cambridge for that. Right. Mm. Okay. No, we didn't have a local. Oh, right. okay. <coughs> Interesting. Um, and I guess the, going up into the, onto the Stirling after the... Uh, Stirling, uh, yeah. Yeah, after, after the Wellington, it must have been a bit of a difference. Oh, amazing. Uh, actually, the skipper got permission to do an, a, a cross-country flight which we chose Belfast, and Belfast is where the Stirling was, was originally built. And we had the first look over one, and it was, it was completely bare inside. There was no equipment of any kind. It had to go somewhere else to be fitted out. And we, we all got the giggles because it was absolutely huge. You know, and you could walk, walk upright right down to the tail, except when just before you got in the tail, you had to duck. Yeah but to get into the rear turret. But the rest of you could stand upright and just walk straight up there. Nothing to climb over or anything like that. Not like the Lancaster where you had to climb over a spa. Yeah. We thought that it was great. We were, couldn't, couldn't get one fast enough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we had them very soon after that, actually. Okay. When you went on to 7 Squadron, did you have a completely different crew with you? Or did yes, you we, that was Pathfinder, so we, we were crewed up. And um, I had a, my skipper was a fellow named Fraser Barron from Palmerston South. Right. Do you know him? You've I've heard of him? him? Yeah. Yeah. I've got his book out there. Right. And um, I was his rear gunner for all his, most of his PFF flights. Anyway. Oh, wow. Mm. Well, tell me about him. Hmm? Tell me about him. Fraser, he was, a, he was a, 
gen gentleman, absolutely. Uh, he was lovely to talk to. He was very, very friendly with everybody. He was very popular on the station. He got killed eventually over Le Mans in France. And um, I believe they were very upset on the station. He would have been very popular. I've heard he was one of the best bomber pilots yeah. to produce. He, he actually did 72 raids, 72, because he was a, not, not only was a wing, wing commander, uh, but he was a flight commander, which meant he was in charge of a flight. And as a flight commander, he had to do, I'm not sure how many, but he had to do, say, one a fortnight or something like that, yeah. or one, of the, one every three weeks, or some, something like that. And it was on one of these flights, he was over Le Mans in France, and he collided with one of our own aircraft. The two of them just blew up. And my wife and I, we visited France in '02, and we went to the grave site. I had a feeling there's nothing in the grave. You know, I mean, you get two aircraft like that with tanks half full of fuel, full of gas, and he, I mean, probably bombs on board, I don't know, or, or target indicators or flares or whatever, incendiaries, I don't know really what, what the situation there was. But they collided and blew up. And I was talking to a, a chap that uh, was on that raid, and he saw, that, he saw them go up. And they all sort of said, gee, what, was, what the hell was that? It was such a big explosion. So I don't think there'd be very much in the grave. Such a shame. Yeah, lovely guy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think myself that they should ask a a guy that's done so many trips to carry go on and on and on like that. I mean, sooner or later something's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. But they were they were bombing the German troops for the for, you know, after the landing yeah. or before the landing, something like that. <coughs> they um, they did that with a, a, a number of guys. I mean, Guy Gibson is another one. He'd done, uh, I think he'd done three tours, and then decided to go back on mosquitoes and got shot down. Yeah. And yeah. again, again, I, I believe they only found a foot yeah. from him. It, it's amazing, really. This film that I've just been got recently, the uh, the first chap that's being interviewed is hard to understand because he's not very dis distinct. But he was on his first trip. And the aircraft was hit and rolled over, turned over and over and over. He got pinned to the roof of the aircraft with the centrifugal force. Yep. And he finally, the aircraft came down, he finally got sort of flung out and his, he managed to open his parachute and spent the rest of the war in the prison camp. Wow. On his first trip? First trip. Fraser got away with 72, I got away with 46. Yeah. <laughs> it makes you wonder why, doesn't it? It does. It really does. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier that you had two trips that you remember and you, you detailed the one where you ditched. What was the other one that sticks in your mind? Oh, the two, two night fighters. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. We were very, very lucky, actually. We, we got cone with searchlights and we, we got a few holes in the aircraft and we we got back and used to go out the next morning after breakfast and have a look, see how many holes were <laughs> things like that. But we, we got away with it. Yeah. It's amazing. Did you have any 
personal uh, nose art or anything on, on the aircraft? Did, did it have a nickname or, or any artwork on your aircraft? No, not really. Not, not with the 7 Squadron. Yeah. Yeah. What, what about with the Wellingtons? Did, did that ever have a... Did you have a personalised aircraft? No, there was one called um, Ginger Isle. He, he had red hair, we used to call him Ginger Isles. Ginger. But apart from that, I don't really. It's a long, long time ago. Of course. Yeah, it's a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and my memory is fading. It's not yeah. surprising, is it? <laughs> but, I mean, honestly, uh, I've met a lot of guys in their late 80s and early 90s, but for 96, you're doing extremely well. Yeah, so. and uh, a matter of fact, I was out at Burwood Hospital just recently. They did a thorough examination, including a head scan. The doctor that did the examination, he, I had to strip right off completely, even with socks, and he spent a whole hour trying to find something wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter was with me, and she said, Dad, she said he was almost an hour. Yeah. And then we had a bit of a break, and, the, and then I had to go down and have, have the head scan. So I hadn't heard the result of the head scan. Do I sound balmy? <laughs> <laughs> it, it must have been good, because if they found something wrong, they wouldn't talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So when you, when you uh, completed your 46th uh, operation, yeah. Um, did you know at that stage they, that they, the end? No, they gave me a choice of staying there and becoming an instructor at an OTU or returning to New Zealand. Right. Of course, what went through my mind was if I say, no, I, I'll stay here, I'll stay with the Air Force, and the war is over, there's going to be shiploads, just thousands of guys, a shipload after shipload of guys, all coming back to New Zealand, all looking for a job. So I thought, no, I'll go home, get myself settled in before that starts. But it didn't quite work out that way because when I arrived uh, back in New Zealand with my wife, by the way, I've been married over there, uh, uh, I found that all the jobs, all the men's jobs too, were, were occupied by ladies. Right. All the women had had the jobs, so it wasn't easy finding a job. So I became an insurance agent for a few weeks. <laughs> it was mainly just collections because they weren't home; they were all working. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other sort of enduring memories of the of the Air Force? Um, not, doesn't even have to be. The flying, anything that you sort of remember fondly, or, or you know. oh yes, um, I chummed up with two very nice young lads. At uh, this was a Marham up in Norfolk. We got on very well together, the three of us. Yeah. One of them got very friendly with a, a young lady, and we used to go to the movies together. And these two obviously were were in love, love. And um, I went on leave. And when I came back off leave, I was walking down the main roadway into the camp and I saw one of these guys coming up, up the road and I could tell from a distance that there was something, something up, something wrong with him. And when we got up, when he came up to me, 
I could see he was very upset. And I said, what's, the, what's happened? He said, well, I can't remember his name, but he said, we'll say, okay, called him Tom. He said, Tom got, got wounded on the way back. And he said, I had to give him morphine. But unfortunately, he said he died in the sick quarters. And um, so the adjutant, came, I don't know why, but the adjutant came up to me and he said, you, you knew so-and-so, didn't you? And I said, yes. He said, would you mind going and telling his girlfriend what's happened to him? And like an idiot, I said, yeah, yeah okay, I'll do that. That was the worst decision I ever made. So anyway, I get into King's Lynn, get into a phone box, and I found they were on a farm, the uncle and auntie, and she was staying with them. Got on the phone, and the auntie answered the phone, and I said, uh, um, I told her very quietly and discreetly what had happened. But this girl was a bit of a tomboy, and she said she thought she felt sure it was her boyfriend ringing, and she had must have had her ear up to the phone. She heard what I said, so I caught the bus out to the farm. And, but I was walking up towards the farmhouse. I could hear her. She was carrying on like nobody's business. She was, she was screaming and yelling. They had to send for a doctor to give her a needle to to quiet her down. Wow. And I, Failed I'd never ever do that again. And from that day onwards, I never made personal friends. I, with the crew, yes, we got together and we'd go and have a drink together and things like that. But I never made personal friends of, apart from this crew. Yeah. Yeah. Not after that. That's a sad, that's a sad story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure so many people went through that as well. And it's yes, there must have been quite a few got through that. Yeah. yeah. It didn't pay. And you next morning when you go down to breakfast, I mean, you know, there's a few empty seats and things like that, but you, you don't know who they were or who they were anything or what happened to them. Yeah. Yeah. You know how many we lost, of course. Yeah. 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 Works out exactly a third, just over a third. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Mm. Can you imagine 55,000 uh, 55, Young men all scattered out there. That's a big crowd. Sure is. Yes. Uh, you know, Beyond imagination, isn't it? Yeah. And to think you get away with it, though, that's the amazing thing. Yeah. And some of them got away with a lot more than I did. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. But others went down perhaps on their first half a dozen. Yeah. It's all over. I think so, if, unless you've got anything else. Okay, I'll take you through and introduce you to... Sure. I'll, I'll just yeah. unplug you there. Thank you very much, by the way. You're welcome. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.